Good evening. You are listening to Marooned in the Deepest Darkness of the Ultimate Nightmare Abyss. With Zero HP Lovecraft. This is episode four. To learn a functionalist understanding of religion. This is part one of a three-part series. In the first episode, I will explain my functionalist theory of religion. Though I have many influences, this framework is original to me. In the second episode, we will discuss the American civic religion through the lens of my functionalist theory. In the third episode, we will talk about religions as organisms, the online right, and the possibility of a Christeo-Nietzschean synthesis. But first, a disclaimer. Today, I am going to speak about the nature of religious sentiments. This is an easy topic to understand if you can maintain an impartial disposition, but it is a nearly impossible topic to talk about because it occupies a mental territory which is perpetually inflamed. In order to understand the nature of religious sentiments, one must view them from the outside. That is, we must be able to look at them from the perspective of one who is not possessed by them. I am not suggesting you should abandon religion. In fact, I think that is impossible. Rather, I am telling you that if you can emulate the intuitions of an unreligious person sincerely, with neither condemnation nor acceptance, then you can also broaden and deepen your perspectives as a man of faith. This is much harder than it sounds, because most anyone who is sentient and I must point out here that I believe a great many people, maybe even the majority, are not sentient. They have phenomenology and base desire, but they lack a certain ineffable quality, an inner spark. Most anyone who is sentient is governed by something quite like a religious sentiment, though often, and in our modern age in particular, he denies it. To the modern man, an important article of faith is that his religion is not a religion. It is the pure and self-evident truth about the world, informed by rationality and dispassionate observation. And a huge part of my message to you, to every single one of you, is that no matter what you believe, it is retarded to think that your worldview is the pure and self-evident truth about the world. This is one of the many ways that revealed religion is better than deduced religion, because the former is self-aware, open, and honest about the necessity of faith. For Christians, this is hardly a novel observation, I know, but here we have a sort of tension in this talk I'm about to give, because there are two very different sorts of people who I think are probably listening to it, and so I have to couch every statement about religion in a kind of double disclaimer, one for the Christian and one for the modern. And I contend that if you are a Christian, and you primarily try to justify your beliefs on the basis of evidence or rational argument, you're actually doing your faith a disservice. He who lives by the sword dies by the sword, and he who pins his faith to empiricism and logic will see his faith broken on those very same instruments. Now, the atheist, on the other hand, scoffs at faith, usually, but he's the 
Christian knows because he has faith. And yet he lacks the honesty to admit those things he believes on the basis of faith. Christians tend to suspect that when you talk about religion from the outside, it is your goal to undermine it. They are suspicious, and understandably so, because of the way their teachings have been abused in secular discourse, especially in the last half century, let's say. But I promise that's not my intention here. I have no interest in dissuading anyone from holding religious views or from participating in religious life. Again, I do not believe such a thing is possible because nature abhors a vacuum and you can't believe nothing. That's right. There is not even one nihilist in the whole world. There is no such thing as nihilism. It's not possible. The man who proudly declares that he believes in nothing still esteems himself highly as a man who believes in nothing. He thinks his declaration is worth something. In other words, he believes in himself. When one religious sentiment disintegrates in the mind of a believer, a new sentiment always replaces it, usually a more primitive one. Although I am not a Christian myself, I was raised as a devout Protestant, and in my youth, my family changed to a new denomination, and we moved about as far from our previous belief as it was possible to move while staying within the Protestant tradition. As a result, I observed quite intimately that there is an essential fungibility between religious or ideological convictions of different flavors. Now, I know many of you will bristle at this claim, but I'm asking you to accept that it's true psychologically, even if it's not true theologically. This is a critical distinction, and making it is the key to understanding what I'm here to talk about today. So I want to begin by defining religion and explaining what I mean when I say this is a talk towards a functionalist definition of religion. Functionalism is the idea that we should try to define objects in terms of the functions they perform rather than in terms of any particular constitution. Often people have positive or negative associations to words which have nothing to do with the meaning of the word itself, which can make it impossible to think clearly about those words. We've all observed this on Twitter, I think, when someone you don't know sees a tweet you've made and they really latch onto your usage of a particular word. It's as if they've built up a kind of allergy to a triggering word and they can't hear it without calling up some long-dead, faraway argument that possibly hinged on it. A functionalist approach tries to evade this problem by first acknowledging that the same word has different meanings to different people, and second, by trying to look beyond the word in order to understand what it signifies in terms of behaviors or functions. In the case of the word religion, I see both positive and negative associations with this word from both Christians and atheists. Some Christians see Christianity as a religion caveat, it's the only true religion, but they recognize it as part of a class of entities, which also includes Judaism, Buddhism, Jainism, and so on. For these Christians, they can recognize the shape of a religion in something like communism, or wokeism, or similar. In fact, it's a common Christian refrain. From their perspective, it takes just as much faith to be an atheist. We'll come back to that. 
I've also met Christians who see Christianity as something greater than a religion, who relegate all mere religions to the realm of falsehood. You can see, I think, the instrumental value in this type of self-understanding. And for many atheists, they see religion as fundamentally a negative thing, as a mind virus, as something parasitical, as a hoax or a con, something which exploits or controls its victims. This is an incredibly stupid position to hold, but it is common. I've also met atheists, and I am among them, who think that religion can be a noble thing, something that orders the passions and facilitates game-theoretic cooperation. And sometimes you will hear people say that a worldview, in order to be a real religion, must be ennobling or capture some particular value. Maybe it has to be non-zero-sum for its practitioner, something like this. But we are interested in taking an outside view on religion today, which means that we want to reason about moral evaluations without judging them, at least not too much. In general, I claim that you should not strive to eliminate bias, that this corporate mantra against civil rights litigation is an attempt to do something impossible in the service of the goal that is undesirable. To live and to be alive is to continually judge the world, to render your judgment upon it. And the four-letter word bias is an attempt to rob you of that power. But regardless, this is a discursive arena that we should enter with impartiality before we pass our judgment according to our good taste. Taking a functionalist approach to religion means that we try to decompose religious belief into the various functions that it serves. The following taxonomy is based primarily on my personal observations and contemplations. I first proposed this system on Twitter five years ago, and for that reason, I expect it will be unfamiliar to most of you. In the interim, I have made some small adjustments. I believe that each of these components of religious belief that I'm about to enumerate fulfill an imminent psychological need that each person feels. A man may not think of himself as religious, nevertheless, he will, perhaps unwittingly, cobble together a worldview, usually in his youth, when these demands are most pressing, in order to satisfy the following six imperatives. The first is what I call gnosis, which just means knowledge. I don't want to confuse people and make them think of Gnosticism, which is something specific. But within Gnosticism, they believe that the world is an illusion. And when you see behind the curtain, when you acquire real knowledge of the world, that's called Gnosis. So all religious beliefs, every single one, begin with a concept which is structurally identical to this idea of Gnosis. In Marxism, they call it class consciousness. And they say everyone who doesn't have it has something called false consciousness, which is when people of the working class in particular act on behalf of the ruling class. The working class has a false consciousness because instead of acting in their own interests, they've internalized the thought process and ways of being which benefit only the bourgeoisie, their class enemy. Marxism triumphs when the workers wake up from the false consciousness 
and they learn to start acting on behalf of their own class interests. A more generalized version of this story is to say that there is a common, false understanding which the majority of people possess, and there's a truer, better, rarefied understanding which you and your co-ideologists share. Awakening to the true understanding, acquiring gnosis, sets the insiders apart from the outsiders. Induction into the religion occurs when we have a revelation that necessitates a new way of being. In many cases, there is an element of truth to a false consciousness story. It may be exaggerated, it may not be the whole truth, it might be bent a little bit. Uh, and moreover, we can find examples of Gnosis that in no way constitute a religion. Most hobbyists, for example, possess an implicit understanding of Gnosis. Specialty coffee enthusiasts, audiophiles, and Ray Peters all set themselves apart by means of esoteric knowledge. They look out and down on the unwashed masses who don't know any better, who drink commodity coffee, who listen to shit audio devices, who haven't awakened to the evils of seed oils and the value of a nice carrot salad. Now at this moment, I make no claims about the truth or falsity of any body of esoteric knowledge. I only observe that there is a pattern. The possession of esoteric knowledge makes the insiders feel special as if they cracked the code. And now they're part of the secret club, the cool kids. Awakening from a false consciousness by means of esoteric knowledge fulfills a psychological need that everyone has, which allows them to build up a positive self-image on the cheap. It allows them to feel better than everyone else. And I need to emphasize this. That's not a bad thing. In fact, it seems to be a necessary thing. What psychologists call self-esteem. One of the things that first red-pilled me, you see red pill, that's our term for acquiring gnosis. One of the things that first red-pilled me a very long time ago was when I read in a psychology textbook that black people have the highest self-esteem of any race. And I thought to myself, doesn't this undermine every racial narrative I've ever heard? But to return to the quotidian, I've noticed that often a particular brand loyalty, such as a preference for a certain shoe, or a car, or a brand of tea, can serve this function, can meet this need for gnosis. It doesn't have to be profound, though it can be. In a mass consumer society, the blandest, dumbest, easiest way to satisfy the need for this feeling of awakening is through consumption. But I'll give you a few more examples of some respectable classic instances of gnosis. Christians believe that we are born into a life of sin through our fallen human nature. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, except salvation through Jesus to be redeemed. Buddhists believe that we exist in an endless cycle of reincarnation into suffering caused by desire. We must escape it by mastering our minds through meditation. Veganism teaches that eating animals is sadistic and murderous and bloodthirsty. Omnivory is a great evil, and we are oblivious to it, strangely complicit in animal suffering. 
which is no different from human suffering. Feminism teaches that everyone is constantly and unconsciously oppressed by patriarchal and phallocentric norms and assumptions which suppress and devalue female ways of knowing and being. Anti-racism teaches exactly the same thing as feminism, except the sacred cows are black instead of female. In any case, they, the sacred cows, could lose weight. Now you get the idea. All of these things are examples of gnosis, of a secret knowledge that divides the world in half. So we'll move on. The next component of religious experience that I want to examine is something I call nemesis, which I mean in the sense of an arch enemy. There's a funny thing about this word, nemesis, in that it also refers to inescapable divine retribution. And the nemesis works best in a religious context if it is something the initiate can never personally overcome. Having a faraway abstract rival that you view as the principal source of wrongness in the world gives your life a sense of drama, a kind of focus, and a narrativity which would be hard to acquire otherwise. For some people, perhaps a personal rivalry can fulfill this need, but for most, and for moderns especially, the nemesis is a kind of inversion and antithesis of the divine. The poet John Donne wrote in his poem The Prohibition, but thou wilt lose the style of conqueror if I, thy conquest, perish by thy hate. Then, lest my being nothing lessen thee, if thou hate me, take heed of hating me. Life is pointless without conflict, and so a sense of ultimate conflict bestows a sense of ultimate purpose. The nemesis is at once a shelling point a unifying enemy, and also a scapegoat who can be blamed for any human contingency without implicating anyone in particular. It is not only a comforting way to evade responsibility, but a very practical one, which is often necessary to smooth over human relations. Again, I'll give you some examples. For Christians, the nemesis is Satan, the angel fallen from heaven, the first wig, a rebel against God. He will promise you many good things and then he will destroy you out of hatred. He will tempt you away from the straight and narrow with lies and pleasant sins. For Marxists, the enemy is capitalism. For unwitting Marxists, they tend to say the corporations or corporate interests instead. There's the identical sentiment. All the evil in the world comes because capitalism makes us do it. There's no ethical consumption under capitalism, right? Everything you do as a capitalist is bad. You can only get redemption by abolishing the system. For feminists, it's the patriarchy. For Wignats, it's the Jews. For anti-racists, it's the whites, or the concept of whiteness, a distinction they constantly and intentionally allied for Buddhists, I think this is the funniest one, maybe. For Buddhists, the nemesis is your own self. It is each person's internal attachments, desires, their belief in themselves as a self, which is the enemy. That's what Buddhists are trying to destroy. 
So we can see there is a relationship between the gnosis and the nemesis, often a key component of the gnosis, of secret knowledge that inducts you into the religious practice is the knowledge of the nemesis. The nemesis is the thing that is preventing most people from grasping the gnosis. It is the binary opposition. Gnosis is the inside and nemesis is the outside. The existence of the gnosis implies the existence of the nemesis, as we say on the internet. And it's instrumental, it's useful in most cases to believe that most people are hapless rooms who are deceived. That means there's hope for them. That means you just have to bring the gnosis to them. Or maybe some great world-clearing event will do so. And then you'll finally win. I'm sure that will make you feel better. Now, we will take a short break. six-factor framework of religious belief. And so far, we have spoken of gnosis, the revelation that necessitates a new way of being, and nemesis, the antagonistic entity that keeps it from you. The next element of religious experience I want to highlight is what I call ecstasy, which more or less contains all the varieties of what you might call mystical experience. And these types of experiences tend to be pretty similar across every religion or ideology, no matter what its actual content is. William James said the four qualities of mystical experience are its passivity, its transience, its noeticism, and its inevitability. That is, he thought a mystical experience was something beyond the mystic's ability to control, and of a limited duration, and that it transmits knowledge to the mystic, that's noetic, and that the experience is beyond words, it can't be described, it has to be experienced. Now I want to quibble with at least two of those qualities. I think mystical experiences can absolutely be described with words. In fact, I don't even think it's hard. People who have these types of experiences are very attached to them, and they think that mystical experiences are profound and profoundly important. But the thing they can't convey in words is the good feeling that they had, because all feelings are on some level inevitable. We can only describe feelings by allusion to a common experience we assume all people share. When I say I'm happy or sad, I can't really say what it feels like to be happy. We have to rely 
on a shared understanding for that, on an indirect approach to a reason that we both have the same internal state. So mystical experiences are ineffable in the trivial sense that all subjective experience is ineffable, but they are not superlatively ineffable. They don't exist on some higher plane of unspeakability than any other subjective quality. Mystical experience is a particular cocktail of emotions, of feelings, which aren't even that hard to invoke. But those feelings are multiple and simultaneous. They're an overlapping sense of humility, joy, smallness, largeness, confidence, contentedness, optimism, fear, ignorance, and wisdom, all at the same time. And maybe that's why it's a bit overwhelming, because it is a lot, but it's all things that you can feel in other capacities. If there is something really unique about mystical experience, it's that many of the emotions we feel, while we are in them, are overwhelming and paradoxical. A simultaneous sense of fear and optimism, or of ignorance and wisdom, those things don't make a lot of sense at the same time. That is, we feel ourselves to be very small and limited. We get a feeling of how little we know, and yet we also feel very wise, as if we've glimpsed something profound and previously hidden that encompasses all of existence, like we've seen behind the curtain. Now, I claim, and this is something that tends to offend a lot of people, that there is no actual ground truth behind these mystical experiences, that the ostensibly noetic quality to mystical experience is an illusion. And the reason no one can articulate these supposedly profound truths is because they have no content, because there is no specific knowledge contained in them. Rather, in the mystical state of mind, we are taken by the feeling of profundity, of revelation, divorced from any actual profundity or revelation. Any concrete propositional statements that people seem to derive from mystical experience are vague platitudes about love or the interconnectedness of all things, saccharine banalities, echoes of moral or spiritual ideas that are already latent in everyone owing to our shared culture. And without making this about me, I will note here that I have spent a fair bit of time seeking mystical experiences through fasting, prayer, meditation, time alone in nature, but also through drugs and rock concerts and sex. And I believe I've had mystical and ecstatic experiences through both hedonistic and ascetic pathways. And I'm not impressed. I find such experiences to be ultimately masturbatory. I have never met a mystic who seemed to be an expert on anything beyond getting high on his mystical practice of choice. I have some respect for the ascetic mystic who at least finds his ecstasy through discipline and self-mastery. And that's the nicest thing I can say about it. But I myself am quite atypical in this regard. Most people seem to thirst for religious ecstasy in the same way they thirst for gnosis and nemesis. There are some common pathways to religious ecstasy. Most of them hinge 
on expectation. There is a certain feedback loop between mental openness to ecstasy and the belief that you will enter it. One of the best documented and best understood ecstasies is Buddhist meditation. Dissociating the mind by focusing on repetitive stimulus can cause you to enter an altered state of consciousness where your sensation of yourself is greatly reduced. It may be interesting to note that in Matthew 6, Jesus speaks against the practice, but when ye pray, use not vain repetitions. It is almost as if he is speaking against Buddhist-style mantras specifically. Some Catholics also practice a form of dissociative meditation, sometimes even by accident, when they pray the rosary over and over. So we can see a kind of syncretism, perhaps an emergent syncretism, between Buddhism and Catholicism in the writings of St. Teresa of Avila. But even without an explicit tradition of meditation, Christian prayer can sometimes veer into the ecstatic. Similarly, charismatic Christians may engage in glossolalia, a practice also associated with forms of primitive shamanism. Sometimes this seems to affect the enthralled involuntarily, as if it's a kind of hysteria. Psychedelic drugs such as mushrooms, acid, and ayahuasca can also induce glossolalia. You know, this verbal incontinence, where people say a lot of nonsensical syllables. And these drugs are also famous for inducing feelings of ego loss and the sensation of a spiritual presence. Church services, political rallies, and rock concerts, all of which are very nearly the same thing, can instigate what is known as the ecstasy of crowds, wherein one feels overcome by a sense of group being. And all these kinds of gatherings make use of music, which can also induce a kind of trance and an altered state of mind. Of course, this is not an exhaustive list. The fact that all religious practices seem to share the same types of ecstasies and the same pathways to ecstasy gives rise to what is known as perennialism, to the belief that deep down, all religions are really the same religion. But there's a grand, secret, unified religion, and all the different names of God and the different rituals and prayers and so on are all superficial attributes that primitive monkeys have built up around this actually real, invariant, transcendental experience that all spiritual ecstasies somehow point to. Aleister Crowley argued for this perspective in his books on occultism, and he ends up playing an almost perfect foil to Christianity, which seizes upon his perennialism and says, yes, that grand, unifying, mystical religion is the worship of Satan. That's the reason all earthly religions have these mystical practices, which are conspicuously absent from Christianity, a few cranks and heretics notwithstanding. But there's a strictly practical, functional reason that ecstatic states are tightly coupled in religious beliefs, which is that people in ecstatic states are highly suggestible. They become credulous. They will believe just about anything that is presented to them in that state. A person in an ecstatic state is hypnotized, which allows him to receive religious teachings uncritically and provides a pathway for a priest 
or a teacher to spread and synchronize his teachings amongst all his followers. This is very important for the propagation of religion. Because when you try to share your beliefs with another person, they never quite copy perfectly. And the person will probably quibble and they'll argue. But when you transmit beliefs to someone in an ecstatic state, you get a much higher fidelity copy. Ken Kesey, a highly charismatic individual in any case, managed to start a cult around himself overnight when he discovered that he could give his followers acid and instantly throw them into a high-intensity ecstatic state. It was like a cult in a bottle. We mentioned music also, how music can induce an ecstatic state, especially when combined with a crowd or with drugs. And the song lyrics can become especially important here because they often contain an ideological payload which may be repeated over and over, lending to the power of the hypnosis. A lot of the time, though, people might have mystical experiences alone, with no one to influence them in the moment. In that case, the mystic tends to hypnotize himself, or to reaffirm past convictions that were placed in his head by society. And there is also another type of ecstatic pathway, to diverge a little bit, which is a bit different to the others. In a William James sense, it probably doesn't pass the test. I am speaking, of course, about sexuality. Sex is an ecstatic experience, but it isn't, strictly speaking, a mystical experience. It is neither inevitable, nor passive, nor noetic, though it is transient. But despite this, some religious practices do incorporate sexuality into their ecstatic component. And that suggestibility that we see in ecstasy is very critical to the sexual experience because it facilitates pair bonding. In that, in that state of suggestibility, you become very hypnotized with your mate. Uh, we think of Tantra in particular when we think about uh, sexual ecstasy but various forms of occultism and witchcraft have also made use of sacred sexual practices. And arguably, from a functionalist perspective, there is an aspect of modern progressivism which also sacralizes sexuality. Specifically, they sacralize a ritualized form of sex called BDSM, bondage, domination, and sadomasochism. BDSM has an elaborate system of rules ceremonial clothing and techniques which are for the most part non-procreative and which seek to induce a state of sexual ecstasy in the participants. Most BDSM participants probably don't consider their practice to be mystical, but these practices bear a striking resemblance to other ritualized ecstasies. People who engage in these practices consider it to be a form of sexual liberation which is one of the sacred values of the American civic religion. So to wrap up, William James says, the mystical experience is passive, transient, noetic, and ineffable. But I say that's wrong. I say it's paradoxical, consisting of intense and contradictory emotions. It's credulous, being a state of extreme suggestibility. It's ecstatic, in that it feels good even when it feels bad. And it's banal in that there's no propositional content inside of it.
And this brings us to our next topic, which is taboos. All religions or ideologies contain taboos, which is to say, things that are prohibited. There is an etymology to the word taboo that floats around that it means to mark an intensity. The internet tells me this etymology is false, or at least dubious. But regardless of whether it's etymologically true, it is psychologically true. Taboos satisfy the will to superstition, as if you could somehow protect yourself from all the evil in the world with this one weird trick. Just don't say that of God. Just don't wear a mask. Just stop eating gluten. But the taboo is not so much a marker of intensity as it is a conveyor of intensity. As soon as some mundane action is placed behind a velvet curtain, as soon as it becomes forbidden, then it also becomes intense and exciting. For example, if all women walked around bare-breasted, it seems likely that the breast would cease to titillate. Often, those things which are taboo are also pathways to ecstasy. In primitive, animistic religions, there's a notion of something called holy time. Holy time is a time of jubilee or festival. During holy time, sacred taboos, and particularly sexual taboos, become inverted. Which, and that which is ordinarily prohibited may become mandatory, which could include something like uh, ritual sacrifice. A prohibition on murder could be accepted. Uh, we may think of the Jewish high priest entering the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur, something you ordinarily could not do, which would be taboo. But in more sophisticated religions, this distinction does not exist. In Christianity, for example, all time is holy. The Jewish taboo against entering the Holy of Holies, the dwelling place of God, is inverted, because now God lives in everyone's heart, and all time belongs to God. The most common types of taboos are dietary, linguistic, or sexual. I think the idea of sacred prohibitions may be the strongest and the most primitive religious instinct of all. It's pretty rare to meet a person who doesn't follow any dietary taboos, though most people may not think of it that way. Probably, when we think of food taboos, we think of kosher laws, or of Hindus who don't eat beef, Something like this. And from an evolutionary perspective, we must at least suspect that we have evolved hunger for taboos to help protect us against poisonous plants or animals that carry parasites. But the instinct can only evolve in a scattershot sort of way. And it seems that we long to be told which foods to avoid. Following a dietary restriction gives us a sense of purity and also a sense of identity and community. A dietary taboo sets us apart and it becomes a vehicle for belonging. A few examples. Mormons consume no alcohol or caffeine. Catholics may avoid meat on Friday and they even create their own personal taboos to uphold during Lent. Korean Buddhists avoid alliums such as onions and garlic, claiming that these foods excite the mind and disrupt meditation. Vegans extend dietary taboos farther than almost anyone else, inventing a diet that totally removes them from ordinary society. 
eating many things that are only possible in techno-industrial society. Jews and Muslims both eschew pork, among other things. Very well. But what about linguistic taboos? We see that most languages contain rude words, and in more insular communities, they often develop their own idiosyncratic rules about which words you can and cannot say. In wider Anglophone society, most people don't care if you take the name of God in vain, but among Christians, many of them still observe this taboo. In progressive society, which is to say all of American society and many of its vassal states, they no longer worship the Christian God, but they have retained the taboo. Progressive society is negrolatrous, which means they worship Africans. Consequently, and owing, I think, to the trace of Christianity in progressive society, it is forbidden to ever say the name of God. I'm going to slightly digress here and point out that whereas the right dehumanizes blacks by identifying them as subhuman, inferior, the left dehumanizes blacks by identifying them as superhumans, as gods, as superior. To the right, blacks can only sin, and to the left, blacks are incapable of sin. Nigger. The name of the progressive god is Nigger. But I listened to him constantly using the N-word. That's the N-word. And he's constantly using it. You can't say it. It's forbidden. They have other linguistic taboos for their lesser deities, too. Gays are almost as sacred as blacks, so you can't say faggot either. In earlier eras, when sex was considered sacred, many of our taboos revolved around genitals or sexual acts. You couldn't say fuck or cunt or ass or tits. Now we still think of those words as lewd, but they are basically socially acceptable, and no one would care at all if a public figure said them. Now, sex has been radically desacralized, and race has taken its place. Now, most of our taboo words center around race. A brief note on this, there are progressive sexual taboos but just as Christianity inverts Jewish dietary laws, progressivism inverts Christian sexual laws. It demands sex out of wedlock. It demands sodomy. It demands that the woman, not the man, is the head of the household. Anyway, if George Carlin gave his famous seven words you can't say on television speech today, the words would be nigger, faggot, hype, dyke, tranny, spick, chink, or something like that. But this would be unthinkable, unsayable, much more unsayable than Carlin's original list was at the time. It's really offensive. Nobody should ever say it. And it's really upsetting. No, nobody should ever, ever say it. Ever. And I feel I should mention that George Carlin was a shitlib. Not funny at all. And his only innovation was convincing his audience that sanctimonious political sermonizing somehow constituted stand-up comedy. Whereas, I am trying to convince you that stand-up comedy somehow constitutes sanctimonious political sermonizing. Most comedians today have followed his template, as sanctimony is much easier than humor, especially for so-called female comedians. In any case, 
The taboo can also sometimes take the form of an anti-taboo, a negative image in which saying the word or eating the forbidden food becomes a requirement for membership in a rival group. In Yiddish, they call this a shibboleth, though it's a word that most English speakers have also adopted. Young men, especially, desire to transgress. So these things have an instant appeal. In our case, for example, my friends, we find it expedient to say certain words, if only to signal to each other that our minds are not hobbled by progressive moral intuition. It is hard to trust anyone who is afraid to blaspheme the progressive God, at least in private, because we suspect such a person still worships them. insane 
than communism. I enjoy these kinds of more esoteric eschatology, but obviously the really well-known example is Christian eschatology, the second coming of Christ in glory to judge the quick and the dead and the trumpet sounds and the resurrection of the body and all this. But uh, even very normal people, that is normal, modern-day people who believe in equality and democracy, who don't go to church or believe in anything all that strongly, people who ostensibly go outside and touch grass and who have the ability to discern whether or not this is a Wendy's, those people also subscribe to a cataclysmic vision of the end. And we'll talk about this more shortly. Most normal people satisfy their need for eschatology via the mythology of climate change. I'm not saying that no ecological change is occurring, only that the nature and the cause of those changes is poorly understood and wildly exaggerated. As some of you may be old enough to remember the catastrophic predictions of the late 90s. They used to tell us that by 2010, many of the world's major cities would be halfway underwater due to rising ocean levels. The total ecological disaster, the one that justifies unlimited government spending, severe austerity for the masses, the disaster where all the plants and the fish die and the weather gets so extreme that we have to live underground, that disaster is always 10 years away. And when 10 years elapse, oh, the science gets better every year. There was an error in the model. Now in 2030, that's when you'll see the real eco-disaster. This same pattern is repeated all throughout history with every doomsday prediction that has ever been made. You may have heard of the Great Disappointment, for example. The world will end tomorrow, they will tell you. And when tomorrow comes, and the world is still here, next Tuesday then, assuredly. Because these end-of-the-world stories fulfill, again, a psychological need that people have to believe they are the last. Because having a sense of the end, in many ways, can give you something to live for, even if it's a false sense and a false end. There's something exciting, titillating, monumentous about contemplating the end of the world. A salacious enjoyment, a bit like reading a trashy clickbait header. Anyway, in the earlier version of this taxonomy, my final component of religion was what I called evangelism. That is, the engine inside of the religious experience that compels its adherence to spread it. I have revised this understanding. It's true that, in order to be a vital religion, the matrix of religious experiences has to spread. It has to be a replicator. But it's probably better to think of evangelism as a rent that the religion extracts from the adherent instead of as a behavior that fulfills a psychological need. It's true that some people exercise their will to power in evangelistic terms, and we'll talk more about meme replication in uh, part three of this talk. But for now, we will relegate this behavior under the more general term, telos. The sixth component of religious experience is telos, a Greek word that means end or purpose, and that can sometimes include evangelism, especially in Christianity. I have chosen this word to maintain a certain Greek-ish flavor 
to all of the concepts herein. But the better way to think of it is scorekeeping. What thing, in other words, does the adherent do for its own sake, as if life were a game, and the goal is to have as many points as possible at the end? What would be a point? This is a subtly different from asking, what is the meaning, or to be more playful, what is the point of life? Instead, it is asking, when all of your needs are met, what do you do with your leisure time? Often we think of leisure nowadays, people taking vacations or languishing in idle comfort. But this is not the true meaning of leisure. At the least, it used to be a time for exploration or research. One could read for leisure or follow scientific pursuits, for example. Many of the great discoveries of the British Royal Society were acts of leisure. But when we see Christians devoting their time to making new converts or progressives doing volunteer activism to make the world uglier and gayer, when we see someone working in a soup kitchen or doing charitable work, we should understand that as a kind of leisure activity as well. Because they are doing something wholly unnecessary to the exigencies of life. Telos, in the religio-functionalist sense that I intend it, tells us how one ought to arrange one's life in order to accumulate the most treasures in heaven. It is the logic of scorekeeping. I think when you say it that way, it sounds crass, maybe selfish or déclassé, but this is the crass truth of all religious practice, is it not? God will reward me for my faithfulness, for my devotion, for my piety, my submission. Of course, Christians, at least, have an implicit understanding of Goodhart's law. That's why they teach that salvation is not by works, but by grace. The grace of God isn't something you min-max, because it's illegible, irrational. It's a gift given freely to all. But Christians still have their scorekeeping. They want to win the most converts for Christ, not out of a desire to keep score, of course, but because God commands it, because Christian love demands it. Buddhists believe that enlightenment is the point you are trying to score. After that, perhaps there are deeper levels of enlightenment, more karma to purify, who knows. Did you ever hear of a Buddhist who stopped meditating after becoming enlightened? Of course not. That's the logic of Buddhist scorekeeping. But I think we have to look at revealed preference when we think about this too. How does the modern man keep score? Drugs, casual sex, harvesting, internet clout, or lazing about his ass in front of the television. These are all harmless vices compared to the scorekeeping of so-called high-status individuals whose preferred point system is supporting progressive causes. Telos tells us what actions to esteem. It is a prescription for the way that we realize our moral values, our moral understanding. In most religions, a major part of the scorekeeping is tied up in evangelism. Vegans wish to make more vegans, for example, but not all religions are evangelistic. Jews want to make more Jews, but they usually do this by procreating. Religion is highly heritable, after all. 
Missionaries who dig wells and build schools are investing in the fertility of poor, faraway places as a way to mimetically capture the children, trading capital to propagate ideology. Islam spreads by the sword, imposing jizya upon non-believers, incentivizing them to convert with social and economic pressure. Christians conquer through a kind of domineering generosity, Muslims through war and invasion. In the past, Christians also spread through conquest, and Constantine is probably the most famous example. Scientologists set up reading rooms and offer free Dianetics analysis, personality tests, and other forms of consultation that appear to be a kind of psychotherapy or a medical intervention. Marxists exploit an idiosyncrasy of developmental psychology, teaching a doctrine of seizing the property of the rich, appealing to young people at a time in their life when they have little property, when they most covet the possessions of their elders. So it's a quirk of psychology. They can get stuck in the brain at a formative time, and the moral judgment sticks along after the urgency has passed. People get stuck in their beliefs, whatever they land on in their early 20s usually. But this is only one of the ways that religions keep score. The other way is through conspicuous sacrifice, which is a form of virtue signaling. And the more expensive the signal, the better. I think most people by now are at least acquainted with the concept of virtue signaling. But this term has been poorly understood by the mass. Most people seem to use this term to mean hypocrisy. That is, they think that if someone is signaling virtue, it indicates an underlying lack of the virtue being signaled or an insincerity. In fact, the opposite is true. The whole point of a virtue signal is that it is authentic. The way that the signaler signifies authenticity is by sending a signal which is hard to fake. If someone tells you they support trans rights, that's a cheap signal. Anyone can say that. It proves nothing. But if that same person donates a lot of money to trans activists, then we're very inclined to believe them. A lot of money here means an amount of money that would feel like a lot to the person in question. For a normal person, it might be $10,000 or $50,000. For a billionaire, it might be millions of dollars. It is impossible to cynically donate money to a cause. Because at the end of the day, you really did take actions that advanced that cause. It does not even matter if you were reticent to donate that money or how you felt about it. You cannot donate money insincerely any more than you can read illiterately. It is a contradiction. So the meaning of a signal is evaluated by how hard it is to fake. The other kind of hard-to-fake signal is to sacrifice time or other scarce resources, such as children, to the cause. A sacrifice is a hard-to-fake virtue signal, which means it is a transaction between a man, his community, and his beliefs. A sacrifice allows a man to buy a better reputation in his community by sacrificing his resources. So there's always a selfish component in any sacrifice, because there's a social value and a hedonic value to the person making it. Naive retards believe that if a sacrifice has a selfish upside, it's not real. They think that it has to be a pure cost. 
In other words, they demand that a sacrifice be a zero or negative sum game where no value is created for anyone. And we witness this kind of stupidity in many ideologies, but it's especially prevalent in communism and low IQ Christians. A good ideology, one that is uplifting, is one that harnesses the sacrifice into a positive sum transaction. But there's also this idea from Georges Bataille, who had many interesting things to say on the topic of religion, and he believed in something he called the accursed share. The accursed share is the idea that there's an excess of energy in everything we do. As for example, most of the sun's energy doesn't fall on any planet or anywhere at all. We only capture a tiny, tiny fraction of solar energy, and the rest just diffuses out into space, pointlessly. A glorious waste. But the tie suggests that the same is true of human endeavors, and that we have to spend our own excesses in a lavish and a sumptuous way, or else it is destined to be used catastrophically, destructively, such as in war, revolution, mass violence. And there's something poetic in this, almost as if we have to mimic the environment that has given rise to us, that our energy has to come from the sun, and most of it is wasted, and we must in turn waste most of our energy. But I don't think there's any kind of logical underpinning in Bataille's understanding. It's not a rational conception, but it's a striking observation. And when we look at the West today, we see that all of us, even our poorest people, are rich beyond the wildest imaginings of past eras. It is now a hallmark of poverty to be obese to the point of illness. This is the affliction of a disastrously wealthy society. And when we look at the ways that we religiously expend our excesses, it's hard not to see things like diversity, equity, and inclusion as a kind of accursed share, as a way of lavishly and foolishly burning our excess wealth. To sum up, a functionalist approach to understanding religion tries to look at the various aspects of religious practice and experience. As dispassionately as possible, we try to examine the different beliefs that the adherent has, how they relate to those beliefs, and how those beliefs interact with the world. I have identified six components of religious belief. Gnosis, the life-changing hidden knowledge. Nemesis, the enemy who wants to hide it from you. Ecstasy, the transcendent mental states that are given to the elect. Taboo, the forbidden actions which those with gnosis understand to avoid. Eschatology, a model of how the world will end. And telos, a prescription for how to spend your surpluses beyond the necessity of survival. Now I want to talk a little bit about the way these pieces interact with each other at a macro level. When we look at the six-factor functional analysis of religion, we can see many of these concepts can stand independently as units of belief and behavior. A taboo or a unit of gnosis can stand on its own, and people will propagate it even if it's not connected to anything else. Many superstitions or dietary taboos are this way in particular. You find all kinds of trends around supplements or beliefs that certain foods are bad for you, in a secret way, or morally bad, but these taboos exist independently 
and they aren't necessarily connected to a larger complex of ideas. For example, gluten-free diets are a kind of dietary taboo. A small number of people actually do have gluten intolerance, but there are far more people eating gluten-free foods than is medically necessary. And this taboo is not connected to any kind of eschatology, telos, nemesis, or ecstasy. Similarly, we may see pathways to ecstasy, such as through certain psychedelic drugs, or through something like ASMR, as corny as that sounds, these things aren't connected to taboos, to eschatology, etc. either. So, these things can stand alone. But in order for a single unit of behavior to become a religion, it has to fill out maybe not all of the slots, but most of them. And people have to feel compelled to spread the complex of behaviors and ideas they are constituted as a package. It's also not strictly necessary for every slot to be filled out. Christianity does not natively contain any ecstatic pathways. I mentioned how there are some heretical offshoots of Christianity which do include ecstatic components, however. Charismatic and Pentecostal Christians engage in ecstatic glossolalia and in snake handling. Some Catholics, as I noted earlier, do something similar to Buddhist meditation in the tradition of St. Teresa of Avila. But these are not standard Christian behaviors. Christianity contains many taboos, but out of the box, it does not contain any dietary taboos either. Buddhism, on the other hand, is light on eschatology, though it's not entirely absent, and it seldom conceives of a nemesis in the way that something like Christianity does, though I make a mild case for it. But what I claim is that people have a psychological need for all of these things, for gnosis, nemesis, ecstasy, eschatology, taboo, and telos. And when their religion isn't meeting one of those needs, they find something to fill the gap. You see this all the time. The missing slot in the religious idea complex becomes an opening for a rival religion to colonize someone and convert them. I've known Christians who became vegan, for example, and then this led them all the way to full-blown atheism followed by progressivism, because Christianity specifically repudiates dietary taboos. Jesus said, it's not that which goeth into a man's mouth, but that which comes out of it that makes him unclean. And that may be shocking and interesting if you're trying to convert people who have strict dietary laws, but it fails to live up to a psychological need that I think is mostly innate and instinctive. And once you have the first vegan doctrine in your mind, that becomes a wedge. It becomes a pathway to start introducing ideas about climate change, eschatology, about uh, right and wrong, and the gnosis of animal suffering, and so on, and so on. Uh, sometimes it doesn't even take a missing slot, just a more powerful, what I mean is a more salient belief, to fill an already existing slot. Sometimes you can graft half a religion onto an existing religion, and then you get a mutation, which is a kind of synthesis. You can come along with a new piece of gnosis, maybe a new eschatological vision, or a new set of taboos that can feel new and exciting, especially to people for whom their current gnosis feels like a default condition. I'll give several examples here. A majority of Democrat voters, progressives, self-identify as Christian, but they believe that racism is a sin, and they subscribe to racial language taboos, and they believe in climate change as eschatology. And we'll get into this a lot more in the next episode. But these people end up adopting a whole 
particular set of beliefs, and yet they still think of themselves as Christians, they don't see a discontinuity at all. They may be nominally Christian, but they are functionally progressive. Because when we look at different facets of their belief structure, heaven and hell and salvation and sin have all taken a back seat to equality and diversity and social justice. And since it's topical, I'm going to give you a second example, something we see a lot in the last year maybe, a kind of revival of Christian quasi-Nazism, where the nemesis is the Jews, the shibboleth is naming the Jews, the gnosis is something like the thesis of Kevin McDonald's book, Culture of Critique, where he describes Jews as having a group evolutionary strategy centered around ethnic nepotism and subversion. I'm not making any comments about the truth or falsity of this. I'm not criticizing this as an ersatz Christianity, though it is. Uh, but all of this gets tacked on to Christianity, which has always contained some anti-Semitic undercurrents owing to the fact that it is fundamentally an offshoot of Judaism, uh, not of modern rabbinical Judaism, mind you, which is a relatively recent invention, but rather Christianity and modern Judaism are both descendants of a more ancient Judaism. And because of that, there's a kind of anxiety of influence, there's a, an implicit rivalry that causes these groups to be antagonistic to each other. And the result of all this is that Christians come to believe that Christianity has always been centered around Jew hatred. And they reduce the actual content of Christianity to a couple of slogans in precisely the way the progressives do. Not only they are Christian, but functionally they have raised anti-Semitism to the level of a religion. Say what you want about the tenets of National Socialism, dude. At least it's an ethos. No. I have a lot of contempt for the anti-Semites here, not because they hate Jews. I don't care who you hate. I endorse racism against everyone of every race. My contempt is not a defense of Jews. It is a hatred of idiots. If these people had their way, they would create a society every bit as tyrannical and anarchical as the progressive society which we currently occupy. And anyone with an IQ over 84 can see that. There's this utopian, millenarian way of thinking, which is stupid no matter what religion it inhabits, that thinks, oh, if everyone just shared my ideology, the world would magically be fixed and our problems would be solved because our nemesis would be defeated. And that's the source of all the evil in the world. This is magical and stupid thinking, and it doesn't matter what your ideology is. Part of the impetus for this whole analysis is to try to see if we could imagine a religion for which this would be true, where if everyone believed it more or less, it actually could create a better world. So we'd have to have very specific shibboleths. We'd have to have very specific beliefs that were actually true. This may not be possible because the world is far more complex than a small series of slogans can capture. But that is one of my motivations. So what I would like you to take away from all this is not some moral judgment of progressivism or anti-Semitism or any other religious practice besides. And what's interesting to me about all of this is not so much the content of any particular cluster of religious ideas, but rather the way that those ideas
ideas scatter and coalesce and recombine. And I'm interested in relationships that they form with themselves and with the humans who hold them. In the next episode, we'll focus on the American civic religion, and we'll talk about ordeals of civility and about the possibility of cynicism in religious belief. Thank you. Like, I love Zero HP Lovecraft so much that he could just, you know, be shitposting about about me personally for a month and I would still follow him. And I, I'm still a big fan. He's he's written enough amazing stuff on that website mm. that no one and I say no one exactly. can compare to that, you know, the, give the guy some credit. I've, I will never, yeah. but, but <laughs> never I reject that, him. 